open up to the book of Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be heading. Um, before we jump in, a couple things just to say what we're going to be doing. So uh, we have been in a long series going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Typically as a church, is how we do that here is we just kind of take books of the Bible, we read through them, let God speak to us. But uh, we've been doing that for uh, several months and then we're going to take a break. Uh, so we kind of are describing that as Acts chapter section one, all right, section one, I should say. And then we're going to be taking a break for the next several weeks, and we're going to be looking at something else for about five weeks, and then we're going to be getting back into looking at the book of Acts and maybe taking some break throughout the Christmas uh, season to focus on Advent and whatnot. Um, But the big idea that I really want to convey is that what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks is this. It's called uh, People in a Purpose, and the big idea is really it's a vision and value of who we are as as a church community. Um, the idea of, of who God is, idea of who we are in light of who God is, and uh, the reason why we want to take some time, kind of pause and consider and think about this uh, subject matter is because as people who follow God, which is my, my guess most of us, if you're here and you're kind of asking questions of what does it mean to follow God, you would not necessarily call yourself a Christian, we're happy you're here. Like we always have people here frequently uh, as we gather on Sundays that maybe don't know God, you're just trying to ask questions, trying to make sense of it and figure it out. So we always uh, just, we're happy. We're, we take time to ask the questions along with us, process, think about, but hopefully our hope is to be that one day you would enter into this story that God calls us and invites us into. But we're going to be taking some time to look at the vision and values of who we are as a church. Why this is important is because we are oftentimes prone towards drift. And when we drift, we lose sight of who we are. And when we lose sight of who we are, we oftentimes become less than who God intends for us to be. We begin, like children of Israel, to live in ways that are not consistent with the heart and character and the mind of God. Worse yet is that we oftentimes just go about routine. We go to church, we find ourselves locked in these cycles where we do stuff, and it's just sort of uh, out of habit. There's real no intention, uh, intentionality or heart or desire or meaningfulness behind it. And at some point, if you live in a prolonged state of meaningfulness, meaningfulness, less, whatever, uh, you at some point will fall out of the race. You'll fall out of relationship with God, fall out of relationship with other people. In other words, you will enter into space that was not really ever designed for you, that God created us to have relationship with him and relationship with other people. So this is why we're doing this. We want to get back in our thinking and our understanding in terms of who we are in light of God and how we are to act and treat towards uh, one another. So I want to start off by basically just making a statement. Next slide, we'll kind of lay this out. I'll actually revisit this, and then we'll kind of get into the content. So what I want to propose is, is this right here, uh, two sentences. One, uh, how we perceive Jesus will actually shape how we respond to him. So in other words, if you have an idea of Jesus, uh, you will faithfully, for the most part, respond to that idea. Let me, let me give you an example. If your perception of God is that God is an angry, frustrated, grumpy landlord overseeing an apartment complex, which he literally just puts up with you living there, uh, then you will never be delighted to go hang out and talk to God if he was this angry, grumpy landlord. You would actually find reasons um, to avoid him. Um, you would walk on eggshells. If you found yourself in his presence, you would try to be walking on eggshells to avoid any type of eye contact or relationship. And many of us maybe treat God that way because you have this false perception of who God is. Therefore, you respond to him in accordance to that 
revelation or that, that perception of who he is. But it goes on and gets a little bit better because how we respond to him will ultimately shape our identity. So if we respond in a way that is to push God away, is to push others away from us, at some point uh, that coldness that we oftentimes display towards God and coldness that we display towards others will then begin to ice over our own hearts. We will become cold people. We will become people, rather than being uh, hot and warm and loving and kind and generous and overflowing, we will end up becoming these icy, cold-hearted type people. Which, if you ever met people that are cold-hearted, they're really not very pleasant to be around. But the point is that God intends for us to have relationship with him and relationship with other people. So again, let me restate this. How we perceive Jesus will, sh- uh, will shape uh, how we respond to him. And how we respond to him will shape, ultimately, our identity. So let's get into some perceptions of Jesus that have been kind of prevalent throughout, uh, I don't know, many, many, many years. So I was kind of doing some research on this, and I came across a really interesting figure that some of you, most of us, are probably familiar with. Next slide, we'll show it to you. It's this image, it's this painting of Jesus that most of us, kind of this pop cultural icon of Jesus, um, is uh, famous. You guys all seen this before? How many of you ever never seen this before? Like, I've never seen it. Okay, well, this is a very famous painting. It was done probably around the 50s, like 1950s, so about 60 or some odd years ago. Um, and it's called The Head of Christ, obviously. Um, it's done by this guy named Warner Selman. And 500 million reproductions of this were made. Uh, the images that were displayed on here were it's serene, thoughtful, visionary, and I added the last one. But the point idea is that I think about this is that this is, this is no doubt a reflection. This is someone's perception of Jesus, and no doubt it was, it was, it was done within the context of a westernized, white uh, perception of Jesus. And so this is kind of the prevailing image that has at least had 500 million reproductions of this. All right, so imagine paintings in your grandma's house, uh, images on a teacup, on a t-shirt. All of these images were somehow 500 million of them are out in the world circulating. So when people think of Jesus, they think blonde hair, semi-quasi-mullet, really good-looking, you know, uh, model, all right? Jesus. But in in reality, again, this is someone's perception of Jesus. Now, it's, you know, this is not just a a white uh, phenomenon, meaning like white people doing this, because you can go into lots of different cultures and find that people kind of create Jesuses according to their own image of, of what they perceive of themselves in a mirror. But um, there's a group of scientists that actually got together. I'll show you the next slide. Um, they got together, um, and there was a, in Popular Mechanics, an article that was uh, written up, forensic anthropologists. And what they do is they, they study this type of stuff. They study ancient remains, and they can actually do this. There's a science of this where they can actually find the remains of a dead body um, by way of various forms of, of uh, processing. And they can actually reconstruct uh, fairly similar what, what a face of, of a deceased being uh, could and probably would have looked like. So what these guys did is they basically, using similar methods uh, that they have used to solve crimes, the British scientists assisted by Israeli archaeologists have recreated what they believe. So they, they took all sorts of um, um, remains from the first century and they kind of reconstructed facial images and features and they kind of brought it all together through you know, various forms of uh, uh, computer applications and whatnot. And this is sort of a synthesized image of what they would have assumed that someone living in the first century probably would have looked like. So here's, here's what Jesus may have actually probably looked like. 
Now, that may be shocking for some of us, because you're like, wait, I thought he was blonde hair, blue eyes, sort of bohemian. Um, but, but in reality, Jesus was Jewish. And I know, shocking, right? Jesus was actually Jewish, which meant he probably had brown skin and dark hair and really thick uh, beard, maybe even a hairy back. This was Jesus. This was Jesus. Like, this is where, this is the context of which Jesus lived in. But again, we oftentimes create these false perceptions of Jesus. Uh, we're all guilty of it. We all do it. And so, again, side by side, next slide, kind of think about this. Um, again, one's handsome, good looking, pretty, one that we would want to hang on our wall, one, maybe not so much. Um, because it doesn't fit our perception of what we would think about Jesus. And I was thinking about this a little bit further, and I did another slide just to kind of think about how this could play out even further within the world of, like, uh, media and, and, and <laughs> publications and stuff like that. And I was thinking, okay, what, what would happen if we took that image that's more accurate and just started using that for Jesus junk rather than the pretty Jesus? Um, now, again, you, you probably wouldn't hang this image on, on, on your bedroom wall because it just, just maybe might not fit. But again... If we're talking about the real Jesus, we have to come to grips with the fact that he may look different. He may actually be different than some of the perceptions that you've had. But if indeed he is Lord, will you accept that? I mean, Jesus will sometimes ask of people things that actually run counter to what they have been fed through the culture and the community at large. But if he's Lord, we have to at some point wrestle with the fact of like, what information, what data will I actually believe? The, the one that was spoon-fed to me through culture, the one that sanitizes it, the one that makes it look nice and pretty and cool, uh, more palatable or, and domesticated, or one that is actually maybe, to some degree, maybe a little bit offensive. It may rub me the wrong way. So, for example, Jesus might say things like this to a culture at large that, that literally is spoon-fed, are you guys ready? Spoon-fed vengeance from a young age. This idea of tit for tat. You know, you did something wrong to me or my family name or you defamed or humiliated me or my dad. And so I'm going to somehow defame or humiliate you. So we have kind of this, this cycle of violence. Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, you've heard it said before, you know, hate your enemy and do evil and so on and so forth and take advantage of whatnot, vengeance. It's just part of the culture, the larger circle of life. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemy. <laughs> That's offensive. That's deeply offensive to people that live, that feed off of this realm, this idea, this ideology of vengeance. But again, we are all prone to create a Jesus that fits our own sensibilities. But the call is, uh, and again, just simply make it clear, that this is not who Jesus is, but this is, you guys get that? You guys understand that? So I don't want you to walk out and be like, I saw a picture of Jesus. Like that, that's, that's probably not, but it's probably a lot closer to what Jesus might have looked like than the former picture that was up there. So, anyways, you get the idea. But where I'm really going with all of this is the big idea that I want to convey is how you perceive Jesus will ultimately shape how you respond to him. And how you respond to him will ultimately shape your, your identity. So, let's get to work and ask a couple questions. I only have two that I really want to look at, and then we'll wrap this up. So, the first question that I want to take a look at is, one, who is Jesus? Seems like a logical place to begin. The second one is, who are we? In light of Jesus, in light of who he is as he's revealed in Scripture, then, then who are we and who is this community of people that have been formed or shaped by Jesus who have been given an identity 
by Jesus, like, and, and then all the way down to 2,000 years later, 2016, here we are, a bunch of Jesus people living in San Luis Obispo on the central coast of California in 90-degree weather, and life seems to be awesome. But the question is, who are we in light of Jesus? What type of people are we supposed to be? Just people that come to church, hang out, put on smiles, live a t- particular morality or ethic, or is it more complex and beautiful and amazing and life-giving. Like, this is, this is what we want to try to understand. Because all of this forms our understanding in terms of our, what we would say our vision and values for who we are as, as a people. So let's jump into this and begin to ask this question. Number one, who is Jesus? We have a lot to cover, so let's jump in. This will be the, the, the main uh, bulk of what I really want to focus on is the subject of who Jesus is. Because once we figure out who Jesus is, in light of who Jesus is, the rest of it becomes a little bit relatively more easy to digest and understand. So let's, first of all, try to tackle this question, who Jesus is. To do that, I want to jump right into the story in the book of, actually, I told you Acts, but why don't you go back a little bit to the book of Luke, the very last chapter of Luke, which is Luke chapter 24. If you know uh, much about the New Testament, you know that actually the book of Luke and Acts were actually written kind of as one book, sort of a part A and part B, uh, part one, part two, whatever. And uh, it was, it was, the book of Acts is sort of the sequel to the, uh, the book of Luke. Um, in most of our Bibles, uh, we have, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts, and John kind of uh, interrupts or disrupts the main narrative of the storyline of Luke. But Luke's gospel and the book of Acts were once one harmonious, ongoing, readable, great story about the life of Jesus, and then the life of Jesus' people, like, which is who we really want to be. So with that, we're going to enter into the story. Uh, I'll take you to what's typically uh, described as the road to Emmaus, or the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, it, we're just simply told that these were people. Now, just kind of set the context. Uh, Jesus has died. He, is, he, he was uh, the subject of this violent, brutal death at the hands of the Romans. Most of us are familiar with that, especially if you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ. You know that Jesus was brutally murdered. So three days later, the disciples were all kind of like questioning, wondering, like, like he talked something about the third day. We haven't seen him. We heard that the, the, the body from the tomb has been gone or stolen. We don't really know what's up. And so what happens is uh, Luke tells us a story. These two disciples, they're on the road to Emmaus. We'll come back to the subject matter of the word Emmaus in a moment. But they're on the road to Emmaus, and they're dejected. They're bummed. They're sad. They're frustrated. Uh, they're disheartened. And we're told in verse 24, it says, uh, verse 16, the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, they had their eyes kept from recognizing him. So what does that mean? Uh, Again, there's some of the story I haven't read, so I'll just kind of fill it in. Jesus is resurrected from the dead, but they don't know it yet. So this story is actually filled with all sorts of incredible irony. Jesus comes alongside. He's walking with them. Again, back in those days, uh, only the rich people had horses. Mostly everybody, like, walked. They hoofed it. So they walked from point A to point B. In this case, this is what's happening. They're walking to the road, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up, and they have no idea who he is. Why? Because Luke tells us. He says they had their eyes kept from recognizing him. So again, irony number one. It's just like, crazy is that? Like, Jesus is risen from the dead. They're really bummed out because they, they don't see Jesus anymore. They don't know Je- Jesus is gone. And here he is. Whereas Jesus, he's right they're in the middle of their story, and they don't even know it. So just pause for a moment and think about that. How many of us uh, know certain facts or critical data about Jesus, but our eyes, the real reality of our eyes, are kept from seeing him? We might know data about him, information about him, concepts about him, certain facts and trivia about him, but our eyes, 
our true ability to perceive who he truly is, uh, is, is kept. We don't, we don't see it. This is one of the reasons why you can talk to people a lot of times about Jesus, and your heart's on fire. You're, like, excited about Jesus. You love him. And for them, it's just, he was just another historical figure. It's like talking about Abraham Lincoln. There's, like, no real emotional, you know, uh, excitement about talking about a, a dead president. Um, so how is that possible? Because, just like these guys, our eyes can, can be closed. You can see, but actually not see. That seems to be the case with these guys. Um, so hold on to that concept. They were, they were unable to see. We'll come back to that and how that plays in the story a little bit later. Verse 17, we pick up into the main bulk of the story. It says, then he, Jesus, and he said to them, what is the conver- conversation that you are having? Um, and then they asked, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Uh, who does not know the things that had happened over these days? And he said to them, what things? This is, again, part of the irony, because here's Jesus. He, he is the thing. He is the main thing. Like, these people are dejected and bummed out and sad, and they're like, are you kidding? You, you have no clue as to what's happened? Like, there was, there was this guy. His name was Jesus. We followed him. We gave up our lives to follow him, to listen to him, to follow his lifestyle, to do everything he asked us to do. And yet he ultimately, as they tell us, he dies, and they're shocked. And again, here's Jesus having this dialogue with them. He is the main thing that they're all frustrated about, and yet here he is talking with them. He says to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, again, it's kind of past tense, who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, uh, before God and other people, our chief priests and rulers, they delivered him up, condemning him to death, and they crucified him. Verse 21, they basically lay all their cards on the table, so they completely communicate exactly what they're feeling. Here's what it says in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So this, this begins to form the outline of the question, who is Jesus? So in their minds, they had all of these hopes and anticipations that he would be, Jesus would be the redeemer. So quick question. Um, if you were to ascribe uh, e, an emoji to this, would it be a happy emoji or sad emoji? Really sad, right? Really sad. Like, this, disappointed. Uh, these are sad people. These are not happy. They're not excited about what's happening. As they're retelling the story, you can feel the weightiness of sadness that they're feeling. So, they're describing, we had hoped, we thought, we had expected him to be the one to redeem Israel, instead of being the one to redeem Israel, in other words, to fight against Rome, which we'll look at in a second, um, he was actually overcome by Rome. So we go on and begin to look at this word that they add to the story of redemption. So what does the word redeem mean? Because this, this actually is everything about what I want to look at right now, is the concept of redemption. So this is a real, in a lot of ways, kind of Bible word. Um, it's a word that doesn't get used all that much in our modern culture. You know, I mean, you, can, you might buy a bottle and you got to turn it back and you get the redemption price, which might be a buck, all right? Um, or there's another ways in which, I mean, if you Google the word redemption, I, I did that and here's what I came up with, um, some of the images. Next slide. All right, you know, it actually does play somewhat into our pop culture. Um, Terminator, um, which is awesome. Um, Jason Statham, of course, he's in a redemption movie. Shawshank Redemption, great movie. Um, the, and The Rock, like how, how, how cool is that? Like The Rock is in his own movie called Redemption. So, but, but again, th- these are pop culture ways of identifying and thinking about the concept of redemption or salvation. But these don't really come close to describing what I, I think the Bible describes about redemption. So again, everything you may 
think you know about redemption, maybe just, just erase it for just a moment or put on pause because it may not correlate or synchronize with how we're going to hear the story of redemption in, in Scripture. So um, the idea is that this is, so here's, here's a trivia question for you. Where, where in the Bible is the very first time the story or the word, which, you know, one and the same, where does redemption first appear in Scripture? Anybody? Take, take a shot in the dark at this. Genesis, great question. That was, that was a great answer, but uh, great, I, mean, I think you can oftentimes answer Genesis for anything. Like, like, where does God first appear? Genesis, yes, yes. Creation, Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings, but unfortunately the word redemption, story of redemption, does not play in the book of Genesis. Anybody else? Good, good, good shot, though. Exodus, okay, that was good. Let's uh, see, that's question number one. You know, uh, yes, Exodus, okay. Yes, Exodus is a story. So if you're familiar with it, how many of you just, out of curiosity, the word that came to mind was Exodus? You, you guessed Exodus, but you, you didn't say it. Anybody? Both of you? Seriously. No, I'm serious. Let's, let's just ask for a show of hands right now. Anybody? Who guessed Exodus? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, I got like two more. All right. I got some work to do here today. I'm going to be teaching you guys. You guys ready to learn? You guys ready to put, let's grow. Let's learn. All right. So Exodus, Acts is the very, very first book in the Bible in which this concept of the narrative, the concept of redemption actually enters into the storyline. I want to take you to that story and begin to understand and let that inform our understanding of what this word redemption is. Because if Jesus is the redeemer, which is what he was claiming to be, which is what the disciples thought he was, but apparently wasn't because at that point in the story, he was dead to them. Therefore, dead Messiah is typically a failed Messiah. So here is this really important word, redemption. What, what does it mean? So, and how does it play in the story? Uh, Exodus chapter 6 is really the story of this concept of the redemption of the people of Israel. A little backstory to this. The people of Israel was this nation. Um, they had forefathers. Their forefathers, the father of their nation was a guy by the name of, anybody get this? Abraham, come on, Father Abraham, you guys ever heard that song? I'll sing it for you. Father Abraham. Anyways, you get the idea. So Abraham, he had a son named Isaac, and then Jacob. So they had this family lineage, and then they had 12 tribes, 12 sons, and they became this nation. They grew, and uh, they ended up going down to Egypt uh, several hundred years prior, and it was during a time of a drought. They had needs. Now, here they were living in the region of Egypt for a long period of time, so their family kind of grew up in it. So think... Like Yazidis, all right? Small tribe of people living in the outskirts of an area that's actually not your own nation. You, you subsist off of the benefits of, of, of another government or another empire. So in other words, you are not autonomous yourself. You don't have power yourself. You don't have a vote yourself. And yet you are growing. You're growing strong and healthy. You got healthy families. They're growing. Lots of kids. And that's exactly what happens. So by the time you get to the book of Exodus... You have this small nation that started out maybe in the thousands, now in, well into the millions. Millions. So imagine this massive nation living under uh, a world superpower king by the name of Pharaoh in his empire called uh, Egypt, and now he's threatened by them. And what, what do kings do? What do people do when they feel threatened by somebody and they have the power to do something about it? They, they oppress them. That's exactly what happens is people oppress other people. They flex their military might, their power. That's exactly what Pharaoh does, is he oppresses the people of Israel. He turns them into slave labor. So the, the, the fathers are working, the children are working. As a result of that, they have nothing. It's cheap labor for Pharaoh to build his nation upon their backs. So literally, you have the people of Israel are slaves to this world superpower by the name of Pharaoh. You guys following the story so far? It's a good story, yeah? Liking it? 
All right, it's a story that kind of frames the basis of a lot of stories where, where somebody's oppressed, and so somebody, we're always expecting somebody else to come in and, 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 and be that role to set them free or to be the main person that's going to help out those that are, that are oppressed. And so that's, that's where the story enters, kind of a very similar type of storyline that we're all oftentimes familiar with. This is the Lord then said to Moses, he says, so Moses was this guy that is a figure. He becomes kind of a leader throughout the people of Israel. Now, uh, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. So God said in the stage, I see your oppression. I see the fact that you as a nation are going through insurmountable types of uh, travesties and difficulties and hardships and various forms of oppression. But God says, I haven't turned a blind eye. I haven't turned away from you. In fact, I've heard your cries. So he goes on, what, what he uh, goes on to mention, verse 5. For I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery uh, to them. Then he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So this is God stepping into the story, and he says, I hear the type of oppression that you're going through. Your enemies are trying to attack you and destroy you and suck the life out of you. But God says, I'm not blind to that. I'm not deaf to that. In fact, I'm going to do something about it. I will, God says, I will redeem you. So at this point in the story, what does redemption mean? At this point, redemption means God taking something or somebody that was, uh, that was crushed or lost or broken or ruined and somehow breathing life into it so now they can live again. So rather than being lost, they're found. Rather than being broken, they're fixed. Rather than being dead, they're given life again. So, so far, you guys following the concept of redemption? So let's jump forward a little bit into about three, about 150, 130 years before uh, the book of Acts was written. Next slide. Um, I'll read a little passage out of a book uh, called Maccabees. Um, if you're from a Catholic background or tradition, this is a book that would have been in the Bible. Most Protestants don't see this as what's called a canonical book. It's not what we would necessarily look at it as an inspired book that is in the same level as other books in the Bible, but we would also see it as historical. So there is historical value to this. So if you're familiar with the first and second Maccabees, which is what they're called, if you're familiar at all with their story, out of their story comes a really important uh, celebration that Jews to this day celebrate. Does anybody know what that is? Again, trivia. Anybody? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. So if you've ever heard, ever heard of Hanukkah, Hanukkah actually comes from these books because of the circumstances of what happened, which I'm not going to get into. But up until this point, well, we're told a little bit about the story. Um, and this, this, this story would have actually framed um, kind of the mindset of every Jew in Jesus' day. Every Jew would have been familiar with this. In the same way that you and I are familiar with, like, the Battle of Gettysburg, right? So if you, or at least we should be familiar with it. Like, I mean, I've seen some of the YouTube videos where you're like, are you kidding? Are these people grew up in America. They don't know anything about America, whatever. But the point of the matter is, I don't want to assume too much. Um, or Pearl Harbor. So if I were to say Pearl Harbor, you're like, oh, yeah, World, World War II. Um, or other words that I can use or phrase or I can say, uh, you know, Twin Towers, Immediately, you remember at the beginning of all of that had gone on. So there's certain scenarios that have taken place throughout our history. So you can mention these things. It immediately brings back to mind an entire storyline surrounding that. So Luke actually does this. So Luke starts out the story by saying two men were on, or two people were on their way to, two disciples were on their way to Emmaus. So that plays in the story right here. First uh, Maccabees chapter 4 goes on. It says, Gorgias. Now, this, again, this guy was like a, a Syrian general. The Syrians were um, 
Um, back then, obviously, a, a, a counter army uh, to the Jewish people. They were oppressors of the Jewish people. So this guy, Gorgias, again, this is sort of a, a war story. Now, again, most oral cultures, they tell these stories like around campfires. They're like, yes, you know, great, great, great. Grandpa one time fought in this battle of Emmaus, right? So, and, and there's, there's a sense of privilege and, and proudness and pride about, I don't think proudness is a word, is it? Pride, I think that's the right word. Um, pride about sharing these stories. And so this is one of those stories. So just listen to it, and I'll, I'll make my point. Move on. So Gorgias, the Syrian, took 5,000 infantry and 1,000 select cavalry, and he moved out secretly at night. But Judas, so Judas Maccabeus is his name, is the name the book is named after, uh, the name uh, Judah, Judah the Hammer was also a nickname for him. This guy was iconic. He was, he'd be kind of like a Braveheart. So years ago, I had a chance to go to, to Scotland. And, and if you're you know, familiar with Scottish history, you know that Braveheart is like this icon of power and might and strength. And so I got a chance to go visit the, the, uh, the, the uh, I don't know, William, what's his name? William Braveheart, whatever. Um, his like, I don't know, um, his, his spot, his hood or memorial, whatever you call it. And it was, it was really cool. Um, so anyways, this, that's who this guy Judas would have been. He would have been iconic in the stories uh, and, and, and the mythology of the Jewish people. So here he is. But Judas heard about it, and he and his warriors, they moved to attack the king's forces at Emmaus. So when Luke introduces two disciples were on the road to Emmaus, that would have immediately been filled and rich with language of redemption of a battle that would have taken place. So the story goes on. It says this. At daybreak, Judas appeared in the plain with 3,000 men. And they didn't have any armor and swords. So just, just pause for a moment and think about this. How many people did the Syrians' army have? 6,000, right? So 6,000. So, so you, you understand the odds. How many did the Jewish people have? 3,000. And we're also told they had, they had no swords or armor or anything like that. So the odds are what? Two, two to one. So, so this is like one of those stories. You're like, whoa, what's going to happen here? So Judas, in verse 8, said to those who were with him, don't be afraid. So I imagine here they are kind of in, in the plane getting ready to attack. He's, he's doing his very best uh, brave heart speech. He's got a painted face. He's got a sword raised. He's yelling. He's like, men of Israel. And he goes on to describe. He says, remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea. The Exodus story. He says, so let's cry to God to see if he will favor us and crush this army. Then they will know that there is someone who redeems and saves Israel. So in the context of this story that every Jew in Jesus' day would have been familiar with, redemption equals what? Crushing the army. You guys get that? It's very similar to the Exodus story too, right? So, so who got crushed in, who got trounced in the, the, the Passover narrative? Pharaoh. He got trounced, he got worked, all right, in the Red Sea. The Red Sea opened up, children of Israel parted it, and God crushed uh, Pharaoh and his army. In this narrative, the idea of redemption is intricately linked to the concept of crushing the enemy of the people of Israel. So th- this, now we enter back in the story of, of Luke as he takes us. He says two disciples were on their road to Emmaus. He would have drummed up all this imagery, the vast imagery of redemption. But in this context... They're not talking and celebrating the exploits of a conquering king. They're completely deflated because their would-be king was conquered. And in their minds, 
they, again, put their cards on the table, and they say, we had hoped, we had thought that he would have redeemed Israel, which is an admission that, unfortunately, because Jesus was cut off and killed, he failed to redeem. But is that the story? It's actually not the story, because what we know, in reality, it was by way of death that this king would actually redeem. So this is the story that they're sharing, that they're talking about. Now need to have their eyes finally open too. With that, let's find, uh, finalize this little section here and then move on and wrap it up. Luke chapter 24, verse 30 through 31 uh, he finishes with this little section here, and it's, it's really fascinating. Remember I talked about at the very beginning, it says here they are walking with Jesus, their eyes are closed, they can't see that, he uses this language to describe that even though Jesus, the, the, the Lord, the Redeemer, is walking alongside them, they cannot see him, they don't get him, they don't understand him. They see him, but they don't really see him. Um, it says, when Jesus was at the table with them, now again, backstory. again, there's some of this I'm leaving out, uh, the disciples, as they walk, they finally get to their destination, which is, I don't know, an apartment, a house, somebody's place. Um, it says that Jesus actually indicated that he was going to keep walking on. But then these two disciples, they're like, hey, you hungry? You know, it's total Middle Eastern, like, hospitality. Why don't you come on in and have falafel with us? Hang out, have a meal, enjoy some time and hospitality and fellowship and relationship with us. So come on in and just take a breather, take a breath, be refreshed, have some food with us. Jesus, then he says, okay, whatever, cool. So he sits down at a table with him, and then it says he took the bread. Now, now again, it's very odd for a guest to be actually breaking the bread and passing it out, right? So when you go to someone's house, and they're like, hey, come on over. Are you the one that's, like, pouring the wine and passing out the food and getting up and bringing the potatoes? No, you typically are the one being served. Here's Jesus, the guest, serving. It's very intentional. Why? He goes on to say, and he took the bread. And he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished. It's a really strange story. He's gone. He just disappears. What happened to him? I have no idea. But he's gone. But the implication is this, is that the very one that they thought failed in his redemptive work actually did the very thing that he came to accomplish. He did redeem. So the question is... One, very practical note, have you fully perceived this? Or do you just know data and facts and information about Jesus? Or have you seen him truly for who he is, the Redeemer? Story of Luke, book of Acts, is always this invitation to come on in, to enter into the story. And so what we see is that their eyes were open and then he vanished from their sight. So in short, what the question I want to answer is, who is Jesus? The simple answer that I would just give is this, is that Jesus is, among other things, he is, in fact, the Redeemer. And what does he do? He's come to redeem. He's come to take back that which is broken and lost and ruined to give it life again. Just pause and think about that, personalize it. question is, what about you? Have you paused? Have you recognized? Have you allowed this God that seeks to make all things new, to make all things new? Or are you still trying in your own efforts to carve out your own identity, to make your own life, to do something for yourself, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, oftentimes just coming back to the same cycle of frustration and failure? The invitation from Jesus is to to let me, let me redeem you. And therefore, by you seeing me for who I truly am, Jesus would say, then you will respond to me rightly. And in responding to me, you will then receive a brand new identity. One that is gifted to you 
as opposed to one in which you are constantly going out, spending time, energy, money, friendship to somehow obtain. Now think about that. Most of us are on a regular basis being offered cheap, inauthentic, plasticky, shallow identities from the advertising that we're constantly watching, from the peers that surround us, from people that are always trying to sell us or give us something at a very cheap rate. And oftentimes we buy into it. We think, I don't know who I am, so therefore I will give myself away to something that at some point will end up failing you. And the flip side of the story is Jesus says, trust me and I will give you a brand new identity. I will give you a new life. And this is exactly what we see the story is all about. So who's Jesus? He's this redeemer. Was he done? He's redeemed. And then this finally leads to the last question, which is really who are we? Who are we? I'm going to re-enter into the story of the book of Acts. This is where we kind of come back to full circle to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Why don't you open up there real quick. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It's a great passage that we read several uh, months back, and we've kind of revisited since then. We'll actually be spending a lot of time in this over the next few weeks as we look at this and unpack all this. But this is Acts 2, 42. So this is a group of people that were once part of those disciples that were once dejected and saddened and frustrated and disheartened because they had thought that God was going to be the Redeemer, but instead Jesus failed because he died. Um, Some of us, we we live our lives like that, hoping God to do something for us, but then God doesn't do for us what we thought that God was going to do for us. Or we had these expectations that God was going to be something for me that he has not been able to be. Or we thought or hoped that God was going to do something for us that we thought that he would do for us. And then he doesn't. And then we feel dejected and frustrated. But then, like the disciples, we begin to realize, oh, life is not about me. It's about God. It's about who God is. And it's about what God is up to. It's about me aligning my life with what God is up to because he says, in that context of me trusting him like a child trusts a father is actually where life is found. It's painful. It's not easy. Living this, trying to abide by this and trust this and obey this is extremely difficult because it's true, like the scripture says, there is a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it leads to destruction. It leads to brokenness. But there's always this invitation throughout the scripture to say, put aside your way of thinking about life according to your own understanding and look at life through the eyes of your creator. Trust your creator for life. Trust your creator for a path that leads to life. And this is what we see, that this is a community of people. So when you have critical mass of people who are all united in agreement, saying we love, we trust, we give our hearts to the agenda of this Jesus, what you have is this community we call the church. And that's exactly what we see. This critical mass of people, Jesus' people, redeemed people, gathering together, and here's what they do. So as the disciples, they devoted themselves. You know, so the question can be naturally asked, what do these people do? Like, what kind of stuff do they do when they got together? Um, which really then at some point then begins to become and form the basis as to who we are and what we're called to do, right? So at some point, we kind of ask the question, well, like, what should we do when we get together? Sing songs, preach for a long time, or, or talk, go bowling, surfing, whatever. I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? What informs our meetings as we gather together? Well, this is, this is what we see the disciples doing. So the disciples, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And all who believed, they were together. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. So again, as they gathered, they realized, like, there's people in our midst that have needs. Let's do what we can to help each other. In other words, it was a community that 
you'd really want to be a part of. In other words, if you were not a part of it and you heard that this community of people were selling in radical acts of generosity, their very own livelihood to somehow take care of the needs of other people, if you were an outsider, you'd be like, I want to get in on that. I want to belong and be part of that. Well, who, who, who are these people? These are the people of Jesus, the redeemed people. So the question naturally then is, how should we, as a church, 2,000 years removed from this act? And the way I would answer that is just simply say the same. Like, we don't, we don't see any need to innovate that, to even improve upon this, because this is awesome. I mean, this is amazing what these people are doing. They're devoting themselves to one another. They're caring for each other's needs. They were working together to take care of each other's needs. They were breaking bread. They were remembering what Jesus had done for them. It says in verse 47, they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So next slide, I'll wrap this up. Uh, The question that we are always asking, that we always want to really kind of inform, who are we? Who are we as Calvary Sloan? We like to say it this way, that we are a community of people being transformed by Jesus to love God, love others, and live on mission as participants of the gospel, which is another way of saying the good news, that this is who we are. We want to be these people that are frequently, regularly being transformed. So we always say this. People ask, what types of people should and could come to Calvary Slow? And we always say, anybody, everybody, like everybody's welcome here. We want everybody, no matter who you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how confused you are in life and how ruined you are in life, the big idea is that as we come to Jesus, we believe that Jesus has his overwhelming capacity to bring healing to us. Because this is what redemption is. He restores us. Or the way I like to describe it is restores us. He puts us back into the story of God. Because we oftentimes are deceived following our own stories that lead to death and brokenness and keep compounding our, our, our loss of life in this, in this life. And Jesus restores us into a life that leads to life. This is who we want to be. So at the very center of all this is a little graph or diagram. I love diagrams. They help me a lot. I'm a very graphically minded type of person when it comes to thinking about through this type of stuff. So in the very center of who we are as a church is this, is this diagram that describes us. So in the very center, Jesus and the gospel, and I would say this, Jesus is the gospel. Jesus, by who he is, is the very good news. He embodies the very good news that we proclaim. And outside of that are these four pillars, four ways of thinking about this. So what, what does it look like then to be Jesus' people? Well, it looks like we worship. It looks like we do community together. We do training. We train. We study God's word. And we do, we do mission. We live and embody the, this, this good news to all people. And we'll, we'll be unpacking these over the week. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So final thing that I want for us to really think about I was asking the question, why is all of this so important? Three reasons, and I'll wrap it up with uh, final thoughts. Uh, one, because this tells us who, are, who we truly are. In light of this, in light of reading this little story in the book of Acts, it informs us, like, like this is who we truly are, as I mentioned earlier. We are frequently, constantly having these bombardment of ideas trying to shape our identity. You realize that that's like what um, marketing is all about, 
It is, is a means to somehow to get you to invest in or to make sacrifice for something, to drop a couple hundred bucks here, to invest a $30 deposit every month here. Because as you do that, you'll learn a new language. If you learn a new language, you have more confidence, you'll be a better person alive. Or if you do this exercise routine, then you'll get you know, six-pack abs, and you will look a certain way, and you'll have more confidence, and you'll have more relationships, and life will be far better for you. So there's always these means to somehow get us to buy into something. But if you're like me, you realize that maybe you've given yourself to some of these things in the past, and they just don't work. At some point, they break down, they fall apart, and then you're disappointed. But the invitation of the gospel is to connect your life to the story. It's an invitation to come in, to allow God to do for you what God has already begun to do for you through Jesus. The second thing is uh, it shows us really where we came from. Let me just put it this way. Here we are, 2016, living in San Luis Obispo, as far removed from Jerusalem as you can imagine. We're not innovators of the gospel. We're not creating this thing. We have received the faith delivered by way of the apostles. The best way I can put it. Now, of course, the way we do church might look a little bit different than our Presbyterian brothers and sisters or Methodists or other types of denominational uh, groups of people. But that's okay. That's just superficial. Like how we dress, how we do, the type of music we play, whether it's organ or some guy playing guitar, whatever. It, it doesn't, it's just superficial. But what binds us is Jesus. We're not creating this thing. We're not innovating it. We're receiving it. And what we've received, then we give on. We pass on to you. And so finally, we begin to also realize that it shows us where we're ultimately going. Where we're going. We want to be a community of people that are generous in giving of ourselves. So final thing to just consider and conclude on is this. So how do we do all this? I think final slide, I think we have one more. Is really this practical steps to consider. Three words. One, participation. Two, cooperation. Three, contribution. Participation. What we share of. Like, how do we participate? Again, the gospel, by its definition, is always an invitation. It's not just random information. Here you go. Think about this. Consider it. And whenever it makes sense, you know, write a diary page entry on it and go on with the rest of your life. It's always a call to participate. It's always a call to come in to and be a part of what God is up to. So think about that. What are some ways in which we can participate in what God is doing through our local expression we call Calvary Slow? Well, I think, you know, get involved in a small group. We call those community groups. Uh, get involved in them. We have lots of small groups going on all over the place, all over the county, in San Luis Obispo and beyond. And if one doesn't fit on the night or the morning, whatever that works for your schedule, um, create one. Grab a handful of other followers of Jesus or people that are, trying to, that are interested in understanding more about Jesus and get together and study scripture together with them. If you need training for that, we're happy to train you. We have people that are on staff that actually we allocate resources in our church budget to help train you so that you can do that effectively. And then Sunday mornings, like we, we worship as a church family. It's kind of always that question, like what's the purpose of even gathering as a church on Sunday morning? Is it superfluous? Do we even need it? Can we just listen to podcasts and then go some other place that's better where I don't have to actually deal with people? But do you understand? That's the point of gathering. It's like we come together. Yes, life would be oftentimes a whole lot less complex having to deal with people. Amen? You guys agree with that? Is that an agreeable statement? Like, wouldn't life be actually far less complex if we didn't have to actually deal with people that frustrate us and just drive us crazy? But that's where life happens. 
we try to avoid that, we avoid the responsibility of that, oftentimes we just become shallow people that we don't really know how to deal with people. So be part of Sunday morning. That, I would say think about the level of commitment. Now, there are statistics actually say that the average American goes to church once, between, once every four weeks to once every eight weeks. Think about that. that that's that's uh, 12 times out of the year. Once every four weeks, that's 12 times. So to an entire year span, you go to church 12 times. Now, let me just say this as a way of statement, that none of this is guilt or shame. It's just stats. Think about it, consider, encourage you to think about this. Um, but at the end of the day, you and I, we commit most uh, passionately to the things that we are most excited about, right? So let's say, for example, if you're really, really into physical fitness and you work out, you will figure out time to get a workout into your weekly routine three, four times daily uh, because it's really important to you. How you look or whatever, how you dress is really important to you. So you will always frequently make energy and effort to try to make that happen. When it comes to gathering together as a community of people, Jesus people, redeemed people, oftentimes we don't have as much of, a, of, a, of an excitement about it. And again, I just simply would encourage you, think about why. Begin to maybe ask the questions, why is it not that important? Or wh- maybe it is really important, but the thing that might frighten you a lot is the thought of actually having to deal with people. And that is scary, because some of us have been in relationships, and we've been hurt by other people. And for some of you, that, that is you. And I, and I would say, I'm, I'm glad you're here. It's totally okay. Absolutely, let me just reiterate this. It is absolutely okay for you to be a fly on a wall in this context. It's fine. There is no pressure whatsoever to participate in any way, shape, or form. Just receive God's grace. But let me just also say that if you're flying a wall five years from now, for your own personal growth, that's not the best place for you to be. Because at some point, you'll begin to wither and fall away. And God's desire is for you to flourish and grow and be fruitful. So participation is really important. Secondly, Uh, Let me say one more thing about participation. In the beginning of the year, we're going to be starting a brand new class called Elements, and it's really about life in Christ training. So if you've been a Christian for a long time, and you've tried to figure out, like, where does the word redemption fit within the Bible, and you have no idea, like, this this will help you understand and connect the whole storyline. Or if you're brand new in Christian, uh, brand new in Christ, brand new Christian, or if you're not even a Christian, you're just trying to ask questions, this would be a great class for you to get signed up. We're going to be opening signups for that next week. And then secondly, cooperation. Be part of a team. Learn how to do life with other people. Thirdly, contribution. We always kind of say this. We want to be this community of people that are living, being defined by generosity. Generosity by way of our time, our treasure, and our talents. Our time. We all have time. Time is probably more valuable to us than what's in our pocket in terms of what, cash. Time is the most important thing that we have. And we realize it's, it's, it's not infinite. It's really valuable to us. But think about it. What, what would it look like if you were to say, hey, there's areas in my life that I can maybe devote some time to my, my church family because Jesus is there and Jesus is doing redemptive works and there are people that Jesus is rescuing and saving and I want to be part of that. I want to enter into the reality of this thing called the church. So time is important. Treasure, the things that we have, money oftentimes. We always say this, always, that if this is not your church, you're just checking things out, you're flying a wall, you're recovering, you're healing... No, no obligation whatsoever to give at all. But if this is your church, if this is the place that you would land and say, this is my, my family, this is where I grow, then our encouragement to you is to be part of that. The way our church works is we work, live off of the, 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 the donations that come in. It allows us to do the things that we do. It allows us to be able to have a, like, a location like this to meet in. Now, as a church, our aim, our highest, greatest 
most lofty desires are not to build this massive building. Like, we're not opposed to that either. I mean, if you are a billionaire and you want to give us a building, we will absolutely, gladly, in the name of Jesus, receive it as a gift. We would love that. It would be awesome. So we're not opposed to that. But our greatest aspirations are not to build this massive structure that has a name for ourselves. Our main driving passion is to make disciples, to help people meet Jesus, to help people grow, to help people learn how to lead and communicate the gospel more effectively. That's our number one. So our resources always, always are going through this filter of how does this help create disciples anywhere around our entire like, that's how we work as a church. That's how our, our leadership functions, our eldership. We've, we've got a team of about six uh, people, that guys, that, that lead. Um, it, it's, 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 you know, sometimes people think of the church as being like this institution. We are not an institution, like, at all. We've, there's, there's five, six guys that all have names, and these, these, are, these are husbands and dads and grandpas, and, and we gather together. We all have names, and we love Jesus, and we're doing the very best we can to somehow steward the resources we have so that we could best make disciples in this church and beyond because we, we believe the gospel matters. And finally, talents, using what things that God has given us. So here's one final, real practical thing. We, on every, when you're chair, there's this little form that says volunteer. Like we're always looking for people. Like there's always needs, always needs to help. I mean, it's one of the reasons why, like, we're, we're looking for people, like, the second service, we would love to have childcare at this service, but we just simply do not have, right now, in this season, uh, the team of people to be part of that. And so we're always saying, like, please, consider, like, there, there are things that we would love to do as a church, but we're not able to right now because of uh, the critical mass just simply is not there. The people that are able to do this, and again, no guilt, just simply saying we would love to, there's lots of things we would love to do. There are always things we would love to see God do in this church, but it takes people to do it. And, and, and if we don't steward that well, then what ends up happening is you get like two people carrying the entire brunt of the entire load, and at some point they get burned out. And I think love, love for other people would basically say, gosh, I don't, I don't want to see you burn out. I want to help you. So we'll form a team around you and help you. And I think that's how we function as a church. So at the end of the day, this is the big idea that we want to convey, is that Jesus really is the good news, and we want to be this people that have a right perception of who he is so that we can respond rightly to him and then ultimately receive from him this identity of redeemed people, really trying to embody the work of the gospel by loving God, loving each other, here on the Central Coast and beyond. And the gospel always ends with this invitation. So I want to finish. So why don't we all stand? We'll have the worship team come on up and we'll respond with this invitation. Really, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Okay? It's just a, so, it's all cold, mellow out. Um, but it's an invitation for you to think about and to respond to Jesus. So for some of you, it's it's a it's a invitation for you to recognize that maybe your understanding and idea of who Jesus was 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 really incongruent with how the scriptures portray him. But it's an invitation for you to come away from that and see how some of your false ideas have actually misdirected, misled you to a path of brokenness. It's an invitation for you to receive the true Jesus. For some of you, maybe you are a Christian. The invitation for you is to ask God. Say, God, what do you want to do in my life? What are the areas in my life that you want to heal? Maybe the areas that are actually keeping me from entering in or living within the margins, actually keeping me from entering into the community. God, what are the areas that you want to heal in my heart? What are the areas, maybe, God, you want for me to be more generous and more giving? So the invitation for you is to ask the Holy Spirit. So why don't we do that right now? If you guys want, you can just close your eyes. 
I always, I personally like to just kind of raise my hands. It's just a way of just saying, God, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a beggar with my arms wide open saying, speak to me. So the invitation for you is to just maybe close your eyes, open your heart, and ask the Holy Spirit. Just say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to speak to me? What are the areas right now in my heart that you're, you're calling me to reconsider, to maybe let go of, to trust you? Just take a moment, quietness, between you and God. Ask the Holy Spirit. Serious, like, like ask the Holy Spirit. Think it, verbalize it, however. Say, Holy Spirit, what about me? What do you want to speak to me? 